Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit. I'm Jeff Salzman, the pundit, and I'm very happy to be with you today and to be joined by our favorite shrink, my longtime comrade in the trenches and integral psychotherapist extraordinaire, Dr. Keith Witt. Hey, Keith, how's it going today? It's going very well today. Hi, Jeff. Hi, everybody. Yeah. To our uh, old friends who are tuning in, thank you for listening and for joining us again. And if you're new to The Shrink and the Pundit, we welcome you. And if you're interested in us and our work, you can find out more about Dr. Keith at drkeithwitt.com, where he features his School of Love lecture series and his new books, From Clueless to Dialed In and Integral Mindfulness. And again, that's on drkeithwitt.com. And you can also check out a really terrific series on integral life called Loving Completely. It's an audio series on, what's the subtitle, Keith? Um, creating Beautiful Relationships. Yeah, there you go. Five-star practice for creating beautiful relationships. Right on. And if you're interested in my work, you can find my commentary on current events and politics, etc. on my blog and podcast, dailyevolver.com. All right. So, Keith, today we're going to talk about a topic that I think is actually, strangely enough, in flux and also sort of one of the baselines of the vibrational polarities that make us human, and that is masculinity. Yes. And I know it's something you've been really, you work with your whole career. It's been a practice of your own. And you have a principle that you refer to as the movement from the warrior to the man of wisdom. So why don't we just start there and have you describe what you mean by the warrior and the man of wisdom? The warrior is that part of us that is willing to put our own welfare second to our principles or to our passion or to our mission. It can be great. Uh, if our principles, our passion, and our mission are pro-social and caring, it can be terrifying. If our mission, our passion, our, pro our principles are colored by violence or by distortion. And that's the warrior. And we as men are programmed to yearn, to be at peace with our warrior nature, nature to embody it. And as we do, as we grow into that archetype and explore it in every dimension, you know, integral is body, mind, spirit, and self, culture, and nature. Well, your warrior self needs to be body, mind, spirit, and self, culture, and nature. And if you miss out in one of those little corners, and this is how integral helps us so much, you suffer. And if you can embody your warrior in all those uh, different parts of yourself, there's a part of you that feels at peace as a man. And what that does is it makes you more attractive to the feminine it makes you clear about fighting and following your purpose because you live your principles. And it makes you the object of admiration for other men on their path um, and often challenge for other men who feel a sense of competition, which is fine. Masculine competition is built into our genome. As we expand our warrior sense, it's, uh, it's a form of horizontal health. At a particular point, we transcend into a man of wisdom. The warrior is on his mission. The warrior is about meeting the dragon and discovering himself through ordeal and initiation. The man of wisdom is not about discovering himself. He has discovered himself, and it's not about proving anything to himself. You know, he's proven everything he needs to prove. The man of wisdom wants to ch channel spirit and wisdom from the other world into the collective. That's his mission. 
And he, he's willing to put his welfare second in service of that. And a man of wisdom notices when he's accessing that point of wisdom and channeling it, and he notices it when he's not. Um, and knowing when you're authentic and coming from the solid place and knowing when you're bullshit is a very, very important skill right. in man of wisdom. Just like for a warrior, knowing when you're being true to your principles and when you're not, very, very important skill to the warrior. These capacities, these archetypes, as all of the archetypes, are genetically based. Remember, we're humans. We take the drives. We take the instincts. We turn them into art. And so the archetype for the warrior and the man of wisdom started six million years ago when human beings came out of the trees. Human beings came out of the trees and our feet developed so that we couldn't climb into the trees. So a woman couldn't put a kid on her back and jump into a tree to, to avoid a predator or another person. And so we developed this capacity to pair bond. Only 3% of mammals pair bond and most of them only for one breeding season. Humans are extraordinary. We can pair bond for a lifetime. We have three separate systems. We have the lust system, the romantic infatuation system, and the intimate bonding system. That romantic infatuation system causes a man to identify with a woman and his children. And this is a form of kin selection. You know, there's three forms in evolution. There's natural selection, uh, sexual selection, and kin selection. This is kin selection. And he's willing to put his welfare second to protect this woman and, and these children. And then that expands to willing to put his welfare a second to protect his tribe. And then as we go up to the developmental ladder, you can see willing to put his welfare second to protect the members of the mythic membership, to protect um, uh, the organization or the merit-based hierarchy he's committed to, to um, uh, be in service of care and rights for all. You can just run it up the, the spiral. Mm -hmm. But originally it came from this capacity. And this was the capacity for the warrior. Men already had the instinct to have position on, on, on uh, social hierarchies. All primates have that. But now we had this additional capacity, put myself second to, to protect my family and so on. So fast forward, all men have this. It's driven by testosterone. You can see it from uh, the earliest moments of life. Um, it begins to uh, uh, develop in human fetuses on the eighth week when brains are either masculinized or feminized. Interesting to me, just as an aside, the way that the masculine brain is, is masculinized is with estrogen. Uh, the way that the feminine brain is feminized is there's an enzyme that deactivates estrogen in the feminine fetus, uh, uh, the, girl, uh, the female fetus at eight weeks. And so her, her brain doesn't get masculinized with, with estrogen. It's just one of those interesting things. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, you notice little boys, little boys strive and struggle. They're very concerned about rights and position on uh, social hierarchies. And what, what catches their fascination? Well, let's just look at Star Wars. Okay. I don't know any eight-year-old boy that's not totally entranced with Star Wars. What do we got in Star Wars? We have the dark warrior, Darth Vader, someone who is, has surrendered um, to the dark side and therefore has put his personal welfare second to his dark egocentric passions for power. We have Luke Skywalker who puts his own welfare uh, second in service of being true to his principles and being true to his family. Um, so we have, you know, so little boys love, com when I was a kid my parents were teachers, they wouldn't let me read comic books, so it was, was kind of good, it drove me into literature. 
So, you know, it's, it's seven or eight. I was in the library, you know, checking out Dracula and, and, uh, and, uh, and then the, the, the Tolkien ser- series and so on. And every value mean has its own versions of the warrior and the man of wisdom. And it has its own uh, processes for progressing from boy into adolescent, into warrior, into man of wisdom. Sometimes it's, it's ritualized. Purple ritualizes the process, which is fine limited amount of choices. And sometimes it's more viscerally driven. Red, power God. Either I'm dominating or I'm being dominated. And with blue, it's being, as we know, being true to the sacred text and so on. However it it happens, there is a transition. There's a yearning in the masculine to find that warrior core and be true to it and to expand it and have that sense of power that I walk through the world true to my principles. That when I'm in the clutch, I don't desert my principles. I stand for my principles, even at personal risk. This is the word. Uh, And uh, many, many men that I've worked with have been very conflicted. Um, Now, partly they're conflicted because with every level of development, we have more psychopathology. And so when we reach the the levels of self-reflection that are more common in today's culture, there's a lot of endogenous shame that people have to deal with. and that endogenous shame um, involves doubts, you know, doubts of courage, doubts of your own power. The mechanism of being able to imagine yourself more good, beautiful, and true than you are is a setup for setting up a, a, an endogenous shame system where you can get kind of locked into never really embracing your warrior power because you're always feeling inadequate. And this is exploited, of course, by um, conformist um, worldviews and cultures. Um, they, they want... People live in endogenous shame to a certain extent because people are manipulatable and organizable around that. Well, civilized. They're civilized. Yeah. <laughs> the you know more animalistic impulses get civilized through guilt and shame. Yeah. In the way that you know culture progresses uh, until that you know we we now beyond that look back at it and say that was a drag. That was a drag. Uh, and, and, and you know and to the degree that it's still running us, it's it's still a drag. You know, as I listen to you and I follow this, I'm I'm feeling this bigger context of you're saying that this move from warrior to uh, man of wisdom happens at every stage of development. And, and yeah. as, as I look at the stage of development we're in now, uh, as center of gravity in, in America, particularly, we've had a a big year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we have uh, you know, gay marriage now. Gays are are now officially in the family. So that's, that's good. All 50 states. We have this transgender thing with Bruce Jenner moving into Caitlyn Jenner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is up everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I just saw the movie Inside Out. By oh, yeah. Becky yeah. saw that last night. I, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. A wonderful movie about an 11-year-old girl. And she's a soccer player. And she's fierce. And, you know, and we have these women warriors in these comic books. Mm-hmm. And it seems that, you know, evolutionarily, we realize at some point, well, evolution in general is creating bigger categories and more categories for people to be in. And so now there's these categories in a way beyond masculine and feminine. And, Mm -hmm. but still masculinity and femininity still form two poles of human existence that vibrate life into existence, but they're no longer just found in men and women, and yet testosterone in men and, and, and estrogen in women. I get sort of confused. There's something 
going on here mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the complexification of society, the ever-increasing freedom and personal expression that we have as we evolve, mm-hmm. and just these sort of hardwired bits. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Help me out here. Uh, well, you and I, of course, love talking about this. Um, <laughs> Organized around warrior and man of wisdom. And, you know, sure, there's woman of wisdom. And sure, women can, can, can occupy the, the warrior archetype. Well, and we'd also but, say, and I think I was reading one of the things, you've, you've written a good bit about this, and I was reading one of your chapters, and that, you know, part of becoming a man of wisdom is integrating one's feminine nature. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it all, we all get to be everything at some point, right? Yeah, and... and there's a sense of if say, so say the principle, uh, one of the one of the principles, the organizing principle of integral is inclusion, enfoldment. Yeah. Well, to if if we all at our core, most of us are more masculine or more feminine. Yeah. You know our sexual essence, more masculine, more feminine. Doesn't mean that we can't inhabit lots and lots of other positions. In everything, you know, sexually, energetically, and, and so on and so on and so on. What characterizes the warrior archetype is um, principle, dedication to principle. It's misunderstood, you know, because, and of course, because of language, that it has to do with fighting. You know, you can look, even if you're talking about women, look at Ronda Rossi. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, as a mixed martial artist myself, I find Ronda Rossi just outrageously um, adorable. Me too. She, you know, she had an interview in Time Magazine uh, that was just raucous yeah. and amazingly fun. She's really, really smart. She really is. And she just kicks ass. And you know, her, her warrior nature is just pristine. Yeah. And she's got it. And, you know, this, you know, this is why a couple of guys jump into the octagon and literally, not, we're not talking metaphorically here, literally try to kill each other in mixed martial arts. You know, they're not scoring points. It's not like boxing uh, a lot of the time. Is this legal? We don't let chickens oh, yeah. do this. We don't let chickens do this anymore. Well, but see, chickens don't have the power of choice. <laughs> These people, are the two guys that, that climb into the, the octagon are privileged to climb into the octagon. And they get their asses kicked. They get injured. They break bones and so on. But interestingly, they don't get PTSD from it. Yeah. You know, why is it? You know, and, and they don't suffer from having, you know, wreck somebody's body. Because there's there's war there's a there's a warrior archetype of I meet you in a particular environment and we do whatever we do and we accept the consequences. You see this in all sport. You know, you see it in football and basketball. I mean, for me, I was drawn to the martial arts, of course. Well, you see this in soldiers too. Some soldiers go through the most, you know, horrific experiences. They don't have PTSD. They're just they're natural warriors. They wanna be there. It's their it's the expression of who they are to fight like that. Yeah, and I think that one thing that the U.S. military does is it recognizes that a, that a soldier is not necessarily a warrior. Exactly. And so what the U.S. military has done, because they're very pragmatic, is they've really focused on, on taking our soldiers and making them warriors. You know, our soldiers go into battle basically with a couple of, of things that are more important to them than their own personal survival. They're going into battle with the mission and with the resolve to take care of their buddies. Yep. That's politically neutral. It doesn't really matter what the deal is. All that matters is what's my mission and my people. Now, it's, it always, violence always gets crazy when it's, it's us having to do violence to another person. 
you know, that, that is corrupt. It's a corrupting influence on human spirits to someone who's resisting it. I want to control another person, do violence to another person who doesn't want to be controlled. Right. And you and I had an exchange with a doctor in Holland who did assisted suicide. He said, I feel no guilt, no distress whatsoever. Well, of course, that's cooperative activity between self-aware people. Okay. Right. Um, I suspect that people that have to participate in executions of criminals um, are le less likely to feel at peace with that. Yeah. And speaking to your point, as we progress, it becomes more and more important for us to have a sense of being true to our principles. Mm -hmm. and, and, be we willing, and be willing to sacrifice ourselves for them. Being willing to I mean, sacrifice. Let's just pause there for a second. Okay. It's astonishing that there are principles. You know, we have this uh, drive for survival. Uh, every living thing does. And yet, when we get to be human, we have these mental principles or principles of passion and belief. They can be even more body-oriented, mm -hmm. but they trump our need for survival right. and self-preservation. And that's interesting. Yeah, and beautiful. And beautiful, it is. There's an art to it. And we want to keep that as we move to man of wisdom. Yes. Right? We, we can't help but keep it. Because it's including transcend. Millennials come to me, your teenagers come to me, and part of my job is to help them get organized around their transition into warrior. Because how do you make that transition? Well, one, you have to true choose what parts, what, are, what find, what the values are that resonate deeply with your heart. Okay, let me stop you there, Keith, because I think we're talking about this trajectory that you mentioned as child, adolescent, warrior, mm -hmm. man of wisdom. Okay, yes. This is a trajectory of an individual life. Yes. Now you're getting teenagers who are actually working into warrior. Yes. So go on. And so you find what your principles are and you find what your yearning is for power, for operancy, for agency. And you allow yourself to surrender to developing um, your principles and developing that power, whatever it is. This is why sports are so great for teenagers. You know, it was wrestling and tennis and karate for me when I was a teenager, uh, that kind of stuff. And as you do that, you encounter ordeals. Ordeals are places where you're tested, where you uh, have to taste defeat, um, where you have to risk humiliation, where you um, risk your body. You, you know, you, you go into bigger waves than you've ever been in before and, and you wipe out and have to deal. You know, any, any surfer who goes into big waves knows they're going to get their ass kicked that day. I mean, the best surfers in the world, you know, you fall off that board and, and you're being pummeled, you know, and you're, you're, you're risking. So you're, you're, going into, you're going into that because there's a higher uh, purpose for you in doing that. There's something sacred about, about that that draws you in, that you find yourself in that ordeal. In that moment, there's something in you that you find that's so precious that it's worth, worth the risk. As you do that, as you find those little spots, the initiations are the men of wisdom, or if it's me, the therapist, pointing to those little discoveries of self and saying, you need to grow that. And here's how you do it. You know, partly you grow it by taking those principles and recognizing they're sacred and recognizing you violate that principle, you suffer. You're true to that principle, you're strengthened and everybody's strengthened. And secondly, what you do is you say, your vision, let's clarify your vision of what it is to be a warrior. You know, when I was a kid, I thought being a warrior meant you weren't scared. You know, and as a counterphobic six, that was a fucking disaster. Because, <laughs> you know, you're always scared. 
And so I had to learn through through studies, through practice, and through, and through the, the the sacred text. The Book of Five Rings is, is still, to this day, a sacred text of mine. That courage is not being fearless. To the contrary. You know, if being fearless is just being fearless. Courage is doing the right thing, being true to your principles in the face of fear. To a certain extent, fear is necessary for the practice of courage. Mm-hmm. And courage is like willpower. The more you practice it, the more courageous you become. Okay, so Keith, so you brought that on line through a series of ordeals then with yes. martial arts and you, you did surfing and all of that too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how has that been included and transcended in your life now? You're 64 years old. 65. Uh, 65 <laughs> years old. Uh, what? How's that manifesting now? Um, what ordeals so- are you? Are you still doing ordeals? So that's a really good question. Really good question. So, for to me personally, there was an arc of me trying to integrate my understanding of the warrior and my complete antipathy to violence, but my attraction to the warrior archetype. It just was. It seemed irreconcilable. Yeah. How do I? How do I reconcile the fear that I have of a lot of stuff, and yet my desire to embody? A certain archetype of the hero. Well, the, 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 you were probably just a little bit ahead of the game, but this—I think this would be a major issue for virtually every kid today, because you know we're growing up in a center of gravity, modern and postmodern culture, which are basically post-violent. We're able to <laughs> do violence with earlier stages, but we don't do violence with each other at that stage. Right. And yet there is still that need. There's still that red part still needs to be exercised, and it needs to come online through ordeal. Which, of course, yes. you know, back in the tribal stages, they had real ordeals, you know, and you might not make it. But now we not only don't have those ordeals, we don't even we're ambivalent about them in general. Right. And this causes a lot of suffering in men. You know, children that don't have enough rough and tumble play have attention problems later on. I have a, a therapist in the wild that, that quotes this research. Wrestle, rough and tumble play with your kids. It's, it, that particular kind of play develops neural circuits that are robust, pro-social, self-regulatory neural circuits that are connected with the boys, especially that are sense of the warrior. Now, if you follow your passions and you are interested in your principles, ordeals will show up. You know, ordeals show as a wrestler, ordeals showed up because there are people that were just outrageously fearsome opponents, and I had to get on the mat. It was just me and that person on the mat. <laughs> they showed. I remember. I, I you remember went the, one, you went to the wrestling meet, and there they were. I, I know. I, I remember one one uh, match. This guy had pinned everybody that he'd fought. He was a monster. He pinned everybody he'd fought that year. So I was wrestling him, you know, and I was pretty good, but I wasn't great. And so I took outrageous pleasure in the fact that he beat me fourteen to two, but he didn't pin me. Like, he was furious. <laughs> he was so pissed that you know he couldn't get it. But you know, I went. You know, I'm going to take my victory where I can get it. Anyway, in my transition, it was, I have to organize all these things. They have to become reconciled. And I have to discover myself. I have to somehow be at peace with all these different forces. And so I did it through study of psychotherapy and then eventually through martial arts and uh, karate being one of the arts that I studied. But at 30, um, I went to another level. I studied with a guru named John Davidson, who taught me martial arts and psychotherapy, uh, 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 somatic therapy called symbol linking therapy. And introduced me to a book of five rings by Miyamoto Musashi. 
Now, I'd like to, just for a moment, I'd like to put a shout out to Miyamoto Musashi. Miyamoto Musashi was the preeminent samurai warrior in Japan in the 17th century. Um, now, th these people were the best sword fencers, fighters in the world at that time. And he was the best guy in Japan. And he had over 60 recorded duels, which he won, which is, is staggering. Um, you know, it's not like a boxing match. You are facing somebody with a, with a katana, with a broadsword. You know, he, he survived all that. And so what he did is through martial arts, he broke through into the second tier. And, and then when he did, he just became a man of wisdom around martial arts in Japan. And, and at the age of 60, he went to a cave in Mount Ito, prayed to Kwanin, the goddess of, of, of war, and to Buddha, and wrote a book of five rings. And in this, he, he did his best to transmit his philosophy of the way of the warrior. And it, it, it's, it's eerie how it, how it tracks with the integral principles of breaking into the second tier. Really? First, thing, first thing in the way of the warrior is the resolute acceptance of death. What do we find in the second tier? Um, uh, a dramatically decreased fear of death. In the way of the warrior, he said, learn the ways of all professions. Know the, no gain and loss in um, a difference between gain and loss of worldly manners. Develop intuitive judgment and understanding for everything. Perceive those things which cannot be seen. Pay attention even to trifles. Do nothing which is of no use. This is, in the second tier, having a felt appreciation for all points of view. He said, study all the martial arts and now forget all the martial arts. Yeah. And just think about the principle that guides you. Mm. In martial arts, the thinkable that, that guides you is defeating your opponent, is cutting your opponent. In psychotherapy, the principle that guides you is thinking always of the healing, thinking always of the growing. In a relationship, it's thinking always of the love. And in the fifth book, the book of the void, his last sentence has always just rung with fiery clarity in my mind. Becky gave me as a president one time a calligraphy of this. It hangs in our house. Mm. In the void is virtue and no evil. Wisdom has existence. Principle has existence. The way has existence. Spirit is nothingness. Principle has existence. Yes. It's real. And so we discover our principles and then guide ourselves to be true to our principles. And as men, we have success, failure, success, failure, success, failure, success, failure, death. That's you know, the masculine journey. But as we do that, as we encounter the inevitable ordeals that arise in a person's life, um, pursuing their deep meaning, being true to their principles, as we encounter those ordeals, we discover ourselves in our successes and failures. And as we discover ourselves, as we clarify our principles, as we begin to discern between wisdom and not wisdom, and we choose principle, we choose wisdom, we're expanding our warrior nature. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the warrior nature has to be radical inclusion of everything that I am. Now, radical inclusion does not mean indulging everything that I am, but it's a radical inclusion. Because if I'm not radically including, I am thinking dishonestly. Do not think dishonestly. Dishonestly, one of his first principles. Now, as you, so you asked me about my own transition. As I had a family, um, you know, my, in my practice, we had to deal with various crises. Um, and, and also, having a family makes you more about other people and, and less about yourself. 
So in the course of my life, I've had to deal with different kinds of ordeals. You know, one of them once uh, I was having to deal with a ritual abuse group that was targeting me and I had to manage them in a particular way. It was, you know, that's an intense, crazy, scary stuff. And I, I had to, to hold the space for a long period of time in that particular struggle. As I began to, to so man, raising children, you have to put yourself second. Having a relationship that, that, that grows, you know, you have to be able to find and clarify the violent parts of you that get acted out on your partner. At a particular point, um, uh, for me, it was in my early 50s. When I couldn't play tennis anymore, I got an injury. and I couldn't surf anymore because I had an injury. Um, uh, I, realized, I woke up one day and I realized I really don't have anything to prove. What I'm interested in is being um, uh, a channel of spirit and wisdom into the world. And I want to help other people grow. And so the things that used to light me up, you know, getting on the mat with somebody, you know, it's, 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 it's incredibly exciting to spar with another person. Um, or, you know, to take risks of different sorts. Didn't really attract me much anymore. I mean, I don't know if my body was completely able to do it. I don't know if I would do it now. I was much more interested in understanding the world, clarifying. Uh, I, I spoke to a, to a, uh, a channeled uh, ascended master called Dwal Kul once. And I asked Dwal, you know, what's, what's my purpose? And Dwal said, well, Kul said, your, your purpose is to clarify the divine plan. And that really fit. I, I encounter things that I encounter wisdom in my life. I'm good at noticing it. It's my job to transmit it. And particularly to men, when you make that transition, you feel your warrior nature. It's there. But it's not like I have to go develop. You know, I don't have to prove it to myself or discover it. You know, it's there. You know, what I, I, have, I have other things to do. And so that's my man of wisdom self. And, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm there all the time, but I'm there quite a lot of the time. And even more importantly, I know when I'm there and when I'm not. And so, you know, anybody, anybody who's pretending to be a warrior rather than being a warrior is, you know, that's a painful guy to be around. But, you know, a guy who knows when he's being a warrior and says, yeah, I'm there. And when he's not, you know, yeah, I'm a wimp right now. Okay. You know, that guy is fun to be around. Same way with somebody. Yeah, I'm coming from wisdom right now. No, I'm kind of coming from bullshit right now. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's a fun guy to be around. Well, well Keith, as you talk about this as, as the um, – sort of the nature of being a man mm -hmm. uh, and the, sort of the masculine journey. How, what's the feminine version? And not that we <laughs> need to explore it deeply and we can do maybe do it another time, but just so I can get a context of how this juxtaposes against the other half of humanity. Well, let's start with woman of wisdom. You know, all the feminine archetypes, you know, the divine lover, divine mother, um, the, even the ingenue, you know, the eternal, the eternal maiden. Mm -hmm. um, all those, if they deepen and widen, eventually become their flavor of the woman of wisdom. Um, and, and I think interestingly, because maybe because women have more social circuits, um, there's more paths in the woman of wisdom than there are for guys. I mean, you know, for guys, I mean, you can, uh, guys can do all that stuff. You know, guys can, can find their warrior nature through art or through dance. Um, you know, I was a dancer for nine years, enjoyed it intensely, but I kind of brought a warrior intensity. My tap dance teacher once had to tell me, you, know, you got to get the karate out of your tap dance. <laughs> all right, all right, I get it. Um, and so, and also the masculine and the feminine have different things that light them up. 
you know, to the masculine, he wants to, to know and claim his partner, and a woman wants to be known and claimed by a guy. For a guy, it's offering trustable masculine direction. For a woman, it's offering um, devotional surrender. Um, it's it, there's different experiences. Yeah. Now there are principles involved in uh, in both, and the, the 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 archetype of finding those principles and being true to them um, uh, is the same on in the feminine, but it's more relational. It more has to do with love and connection, in my experience. Um, it certainly has is more contextual. You know, the masculine is very focused. You know, like I said earlier, you know, give me my mission, I'll take care of my guys. I'm not going to think about the larger focus. Feminine is one more contextual. Yeah. Um, you know, if anything, I think that that, that 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 at least genetically, that makes makes it a little bit more difficult for women to be in combat, just because they're more likely to have a contextual understanding of what's going on. You know, and the context has to feel more virtuous. So I think with with the feminine, what my, my encounter is is that you find whatever those archetypes are, you find the principles involved, and then again surrender to them, um, and then it plays out in your life. Uh, and there's a different feeling of being true to your principles in the feminine. In the feminine, it feels like being true to love. Um, there's a there's a certain um, it, there's a depth and a power in that, but it's a warmer depth and power in my experience. Mm -hmm. And when you feel when you find the masculine interfacing with the, the feminine, the, there's there's this exquisite, and you know, this happens in all relationships, you know, gay and straight, but let's talk about just straight relationships. There's just something very beautiful about that. Of a guy inhabiting, you know, his responsibility to maintain himself and to care for and protect his feminine partner, and a feminine person discerning, trusting his him. Um, suffering when he's not being his best self, but c confident that he'll adjust to his best self and offering devotional love, offering her light in response. That's something that attracts all of us. Yeah. And that's why we watch romantic comedies. Um, we, you know, we like seeing those relationships. Now, one thing that isn't widely taught in this culture is how do you maintain that through the intimate bonding stage of a relationship when the romantic infatuation stage fades? Yeah. And I think that's a developmental challenge for guys as warriors. Um, to, you need to be a warrior in your relationship. And I think it's a developmental challenge for women um, when they're in that stage. You need to be able to maintain the divine lover in your relationship. You need to be able to, to connect with, with feminine wisdom in, in maintaining love with your partner. You, need a, you just need a, a principle. You need a felt sense of responsibility to do that. Yeah. And, you know, so there's a similar quality of being true to principle. Putting myself second. To principle. Alison Armstrong advises women. She says, you should have more sex than you want, <laughs> which is an amazing thing for Alison Armstrong to say to women. But in monogamous committed relationships, that's a pretty sound principle for women. Why? Why? Well, partly it involves in certain situations, I'm going to put, um, I'm take this principle and kind of put wherever my personal inclination is second to that principle. So what um, do you know? So, well, so the, this is, um, you know, talking about people today, mm -hmm. and we, as you point out, this, particularly the, the warrior to man of wisdom principle plays out at every stage of development. Yeah. So here we are, and, and, you know, people listening to this, we're sophisticated, we're integral on a good day, second tier. Uh -huh. uh, what's happening at the leading edge? In my, this is my opinion, and I've observed it. Um, you know, I have my little laboratory in my work. I mean, one nice thing about doing 55,000 therapy sessions is, you know, I kind of get to, it's kind of my laboratory as well as my practice. Um, 
I think that there's more capacity for self-observation in the second tier. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means in terms of if there's some aspect of your warrior nature that needs development or is that suffering, you're more likely to see it and more likely to feel a sense of responsibility to address it. Um, um, now, when people hit defensive states, when, when destructive shadow intrudes, they regress. Now, in the second tier, you observe yourself regressing. You feel it. Yeah. And you make an adjustment. Um, if you can't observe the regression, if instead you rationalize it in power or something, and this is true for men and women, um, at that particular point, you get lost in the chaos. You know, if, if we're talking about the hero's journey and the road of, of adventures, in all the archetypes, when the hero's on the journey, there is a particular point where the challenge is confusion and chaos. And in confusion and chaos, the hero is, ch is challenged to do two things. One, to listen to his heart, to listen to his deepest voice, his soul. And two, to be alert for divine guidance. And the divine guidance will, will, will offer you a way, a path through the forest, through the chaos. And it'll be a frightening path. It'll be challenging. It'll be scary. But, if, but your heart will say, that's the path. And when you say yes to it, you find your way through. And on the other side, you're, you've found a certain part of yourself. You've discovered yourself. And that little spot is the integration of the masculine and feminine intuition, uh, uh, individuation, as Jung called it. It's a reconciliation with the mother and the father. Now, as a warrior does this and has discovered this part of themselves, what happens? They're drawn to go back through the portal and offer, as man or woman of wisdom, their gifts to the community. They make that transition. Now, I think we make those transitions a lot. I think, you know, these, these little circles happen all throughout development. But what we find is, is less and less, more and more of an emphasis on warrior in, the, in you know, the adolescent, post-adolescent, more and more of an emphasis on man of wisdom, woman of wisdom, as we become older and wiser and more experienced. This is an optimal development, of course. And so non-optimal development, of course, is developmental arrest. Arguably, all psychopathology is a form of development that's not caused by bio biological factors, is a form of developmental arrest. And so part of psychotherapy is finding that place. And, and or as, as um, um, Kim Barto uh, uh, says, find an inflection point and, and work on that. And with men, it needs to be consistent with their warrior nature. You know, they, helping them discover that, helping them be true to that is an important, has been an important part of my work. It was an important part of my work bringing it to psychotherapy in general in the 70s because there was a lot of green in psychotherapy in the 70s. And so there were a lot of guys that were, were trying to find their masculine through embodying their feminine. And they didn't really understand why dancing in the woods and you know, writing poetry and wearing colorful clothes and stuff to, didn't make them babe, babe magnets and <laughs> it didn't leave them feeling all strong and powerful. Well, you know, you're developing your feminine, which is fine. Radical inclusion is good. But, you know, your warrior self says, you know, there's a certain situation where I need to be able to stand firm in the face of adversity and, you know, meet power with power. And if I don't feel that sense of confidence in myself, I suffer. Yeah. And when I do feel that sense of confidence in myself, then I'm embodying my warrior nature. And you know a guy that has that. And, you know, when they have it from, from their, their, their constructive shadow, when they have it from principles that involve care of others, um, fairness, um, there's something very wonderful and reassuring about that guy. 
if, if there's something, if he has it from destructive shadow, from wanting to dominate others, say bullying others, or from wanting to exploit others, or from wanting to create categories of people that have less rights that I can exploit, you're frightened of that person. Yeah. They're, they're, you have an inherent fear of them. You know, and that fear, of course, creates antagonism, which creates, you know, the kinds of uh, polarities that we see, you know, the chaos that we see in political discourse, for instance. All that stuff, all that anger is run by fear. You know, people are frightened. And to a certain extent, with good reason. Um, you know, the, the, the super, super rigid positions have an existential fear. If I let your input in, I'm going to have to challenge my rigid positions and find a self that I might not like. That might not be true to the values that I say that I that because my values are rigid. It's not like values are we don't have relativistic values, and so they're right. You know, they they there is an existential threat to them. You know, because they will have to change if they let that stuff in. Yeah. And then and then people the far the the super progressive people they have a fear because they know that this person wants to kill parts of me. You know, aspects of who I am, they want to pathologize and make it illegal and they want to hurt it and stamp it out. And, you know, and they'll, and they'll do it to me if they can. And that scares the hell out of me. Yeah. Well, I think of people who are, um, you know, maybe listening to this, uh, who are have kids and how they can help guide their kids, uh, particularly boys, through these kinds of, um, you know, this kind of growth and evolution. And, and I think of, um, well, your story, you've told it before, where yeah. you, you, you sort of went off the rails for a while until you found your young warrior. Yeah, I went crazy. Yeah. I, you know, I like being a kid. <laughs> being a kid was pretty good. I mean, you know, it wasn't perfect. Um, dude, here's how you help kids. One, you find what their enthusiasm is, what their passion is, and then you give them a way to express it. And then you have a growth mindset with them. We're interested in effort and progress in this area. We don't need you to be the greatest or the win all the time, but we're interested in effort and progress. We find that beautiful about you. At a certain point, kids are going to be interested in a merit-based uh, hierarchy of some sort. And so as a parent, you go, yeah, there's a merit-based hierarchy. Now, what do you have to do in a merit-based hierarchy? You need to train. The way is in training, Miyamoto Musashi said. And you have to learn how to lose gracefully. Um, so our kids... A lot of kids don't know how to lose gracefully, so we help them learn how to do that. And you need to learn how to win gracefully. And not surprisingly, people who win gracefully also lose gracefully and vice versa. And the research is pretty clear about that. Yeah. So as that happens, our child, our kid, begins to find their own sense of identity, and we support that. And then we find places where they can go, where they can be challenged. Now, as they go about being challenged, as they go about their life, life produces ordeals. You look at normal, any human life, if you're just following a path of uh, a developmental arc, it'll produce ordeals. When the ordeals happen, you do your best to meet them. And in the process of meeting them and trying to be true to your principles, you discover a little part of yourself. And so we want wise others around our kids that can point that out. Yeah, you met it. You were true to your principles or you weren't. And here's this part of yourself that you, dis that you discovered. And this is how it connects to your principle. And this is how it connects to larger principles. And then this larger principle of radical inclusion is a very important principle. Um, the psychotherapies of the 60s and 70s, they pretended that you could take parts of yourself and condition them out or, or ceremony them out of your consciousness were disastrous, um, uh, in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all those, the ones that stuck around like, changed like for instance, that. For instance, what? Well, you know, there's uh, one of my friends once. You know, she had a client come in. This was in 1974. 
So he's talking about this case. And he said, well, she came in, she said she has this demon in her she wants to get rid of. So I had her do a little gestalt dialogue with the demon. And then I had her put the demon in the drawer in my office and then have her leave. You know, he's really pleased with this. You know, so he happened to be one of my teachers at the time. But, you know, I always have had an opinion. I said, you know, I don't think we want to put that demon in the drawer in your office. I think we need that demon needs to be part of an inner chorus in her that needs to be integrated. And she needs a relationship with that demon that's better. And now, you know, she's given it power by putting it in your office. That's not good. Or, you know, or George Bach, you know, he used to do all this anger stuff. He wanted people to beat their anger out on stuff. Right. Well, that's just not work. I mean, I, I, I'll give you the studies, you know, like that. Um, or the behaviorist people. We'll just do a behavioral system. We'll find the contingencies and we'll, we'll operatively condition you into not being scared of snakes. And then that's going to scare, that's going to, you know, solve your problems. Right. You know, we're just going to deal with one symptom at a time. Well, dealing with one symptom of it at a time doesn't really help people all that much as it turns out. You know, there needs to be a larger context. And when you asked a bunch of the behaviorists who they chose for therapists for themselves, they didn't choose other behaviorists. They all went to psychoanalysts, <laughs> which I thought was a funny study. Well, and, and, and what you're talking about as the, the movement towards uh, ordeal is yeah. actually the movement towards metabolization of the demon. In the yes. hero's journey, you meet all sorts of monsters and demons and you, you know, basically either defeat them or befriend them and get their wisdom and move yeah. forward. And when you defeat them, you know, uh, if you're dealing with, uh, you know, my teacher uh, who taught me uh, martial arts and, and gave me the yoga, the five dragons and, and gave me the book, John Davidson. He lived in the street where there was a street gang. You know, there's, there's these young, you know, toughs in the street gang. They were kind of giving shit to some of his clients. So John went out one day with a pipe and he went up to a group. And he found, you know, the toughest guy and he knocked him down on the ground. And then when the guy got out, he stuck the pipe in his mouth. There was some pot in it and he lit it. He forced them to smoke pot with him. You know, and he just told them, he said, look, you know, we all live here together. I know your dads were in gangs. I know that you're in gangs. I know that's your energy. That's your warrior energy. Well, you know, I'm a fucking warrior too. And we need to live on the street together. Let's make it work. Okay. They loved him after that. So in red, you kick their ass and then you become their friend. Yeah. If you have a part of you like that, first of all, you kick its ass. You go, no, I'm not going to let you hurt people or hurt me. And then you go, now you have a place. You have power that comes into our community here and I value that. And so all the different destructive parts become those allies. And eventually we transform them into our allies. And the man of wisdom doesn't isn't tormented by inner demons. The inner demons are resources to the man of wisdom. He doesn't have to do anything with them other than just keep them organized. And, you know, keep in touch. Keep in touch, yeah. <laughs> Turn towards them from time to time. Yeah. And, you know, to a certain extent, it's our own dark, destructive shadow that makes us empathically resonate with other people's dark shadow. And if somebody wants to work on their dark shadow, you got to climb in there with them to help them with it. You know, you can't, you know, like stay on the outside and not get in the mud. You know, you got to dive in and know what it's like in the mud and be very graceful in the mud. More graceful than they. So they can learn how to be graceful. So what, That's how they borrow that. that you're jumping into an, in the game with another person's shadow. Uh, All right. So it's a business partner or a spouse or a kid. All right. So uh, um, uh, uh, say there's a kid. You know, say you have a... a 
uh, um, a, a millennial, you know, a 27-year-old kid. And so your kid, um, uh, and, you know, like most kids, delayed adolescence, you know, you're just kind of helping them, supporting them. And so they get like $300 worth of parking tickets. And you've been paying their parking tickets. So you pay the last one, you go, you know, I'm not going to pay any more of your parking tickets. What do you mean? I mean, I'm not going to pay any more of your parking tickets. Well, what am I going to do if I get a parking ticket? I don't know. You figure it out. Okay? Yeah. So basically bounce it back. So I'm not going to codependently support your, you know, your lack of integration. I'm going to actually amplify the problems with your lack of integration. Um, now, what happens when parents do this is generally there's a developmental shift in their kid forward. Not always. You know, depending on the level of psychopathology, sometimes kids regress. Sometimes they get more self-destructive. I mean, you know, this is why a lot of parents of drug addict kids or alcoholic kids finally have to say, don't come here ever um, if you've been using drugs or alcohol. And if you're clean, I'm willing to see you, but only if you're clean. Um, um, these are hard boundaries to set. So that's an example. Yeah. Or, or here's another one. So there was a guy, there's a guy who's a chronic womanizer. Okay, he's really good at, he's a, he's a romance addict, really good at pursuing women, getting in the fall in love with them, having sex a few times, and then that's it. Then he disappears. Okay, so, you know, he's kind of despairing, you know, hitting his late 30s, so he finds me. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I, somehow. He says, well, will you work with me? And I go, sure, I'll work with you. Okay, so we start working together, and he finds a woman that's different from the other women. So he starts bonding with her, but he's still pursuing other women, okay? And every time he does, like I'm in his face about, what are the consequences of being a romance addict? Um, and so more and more, he wakes up to what happens when he does it. And so in stages, he stops He stops having sex with them. And then he cuts down on the incidents. And then he begins to be more aware of the compulsive addict. Meanwhile, he's working on his relationship with, with this person. It's getting better. And, and you know, they, they get married and they have kids. And so as I'm worried, so this, this shadow thing still keeps intruding. And now every once in a while it shows up and he pursues a woman, you know, he kisses her a few times and says, well, I can't go any further. And, you know, he didn't have a conversation. I say, look, I'm ripping my hair out of here. Cause you know, you're going to get busted doing this at some time. And you have this great scene that you're developing. And this great scene that you're developing is very fragile. Right now it doesn't involve cheating. It doesn't exist in your, in your, in your wife's universe. You take a risk like this, and all of a sudden exists in her universe, and your marriage has changed forever. You don't want to risk that. Oh yeah, maybe you're right, Keith. You know, and then so you know the time between episodes goes longer. So that's him struggling with that part of him, that impulse that goes against his principles. His principles are I don't want to cause suffering, but he has this combination of this drive and this ability to go out and and create traumatic infatuation that he finds really really yummy. Talks himself into it. And takes these uh, risks that are inappropriate risks. And so as he's becoming more of a man of wisdom, that's becoming more an object of awareness. He has more ability to control it. So that's another example. Yeah. And it's not like you lose that. You know, eventually so if it's... As he grows into a man of wisdom, you know, that behavior eventually subsides. Yeah. And he is, you know, basically the, a, a, a larger, better version of himself. And what he learns how to do is take that romance guy and be in social environments and there's an attractive woman and create a little bit of erotic polarity, you know, but just enough so that she's not intruded upon, he's not obsessed and his marriage isn't, isn't right. challenged and he's nourished by that. Yeah. 
And so that part of him gets nourished, gets to be nourished in that particular constraint. And so do the people around him get nourished. So do the people around him. What's more delicious than somebody who has a little bit of juice and charisma? Yes. It's, it's, you know, as a therapist, it's it, 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 with, with an attractive woman. She wants me to enjoy her attractiveness, but she doesn't want to be so intruded on. So there's, there's this event horizon that there's my responsibility to maintain where she feels appreciated, but she feels secure and enlivened. And that happens if my boundary is perfect. You know, my book, 100 Reasons and I Have a Secret Affair, which isn't released yet, which I, I got to get to that. I have a chapter called The Theory of Loopholes. In The Theory of Loopholes, if you have one little tiniest little microscopic loophole in your fidelity commitment, you're going to work your way through that. And that's going to cause problems. Now, that being said, you know, there are, there are exceptions. There are different configurations of relationships. There are consequences to that. You know, I'm not saying that don't have a, that the only great relationship is monogamous relationship. Not at all. I'm just saying that you don't want to be in, in denial of the consequences of decisions that you make. Yeah. And you really want to include your partner in, in the negotiation. This is one of the reasons why, in, at least statistically, in gay relationships, there's less suffering about having sex with other people. Because gay relationships, sex with other people is more likely to be negotiated by the two partners. Right. So you don't have sexual betrayal. You might have jealousy. You might have feelings of exclusion, you know, and you might have a relationship breaking up, which happens, but less sense of betrayal because we're included. We're working on this together. Yep. And I don't know if that tracks with your experience. Well, yeah, it does. I mean, I think gay relationships have uh, pioneered a lot of things that yeah. um, you know, straight relationships can learn things from, uh, sure. and, or, you know, it just moves the ball in terms of what more categories of what could happen, like staying uh, close to exes. That's a very yeah. standard thing in gay relationships. It happens in straight relationships too, but I think more so in yeah. gay relationships. And so you see, that's a principled position. Yeah, that's being true to your warrior nature. Of the, I don't want to, I don't want to permanently exclude somebody because I was hurt by them. Now, realistically, you have to deal with the fact if you have an intense relationship that breaks up, you have to temporarily exclude that person to allow your nervous system yeah. to readjust. But then that's having a that's man of wisdom territory. That's having a, a contextual view. That's having a developmental orientation. But developmentally, after I go through that period of necessary readjustment, I'd like to be able to come back and include you as a good person in my life. Yeah. So, yeah, so you know, it's a man of wisdom position. Yeah. And so, as as I hear this description of a man of wisdom uh, in terms of this romantic love and relationship and so forth, so mm -hmm. you know, has all the juice of uh, you know, being a man and being uh, sexual mm -hmm. and, and yet has it contained mm -hmm. and lets it out as appropriate mm -hmm. so that it enlivens his relationships, all of his relationships. He's just a charismatic, juicy person, but yeah. also safe, isn't putting anybody off, you know, just manages that, that, you know, geyser of, of sexuality. And so I can see that, okay, so we transfer that to our work. And so yes. the man of wisdom at work is, you know, a, a fierce warrior who is operating on principles bigger than himself, is willing to die. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, so there's something about that when you meet somebody in your professional life who has that kind of juice again, but he's not dangerous. He's not capricious. 
He's, uh, doesn't humiliate people, you know, but it's there. And that's, that's maybe a character, a description of a man of wisdom in the professional world. Well, you you also, you realize you just described yourself and me. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. I I mean, I, I try, you know, that's what I want. Well, you know, neither one of us are perfect, but mostly we're that guy. Yeah. And as you said earlier in our talk, if you're really living that way, ordeals will show up. Yes. You know, you don't, <laughs> I mean, if you're numb and dead and not doing much, you don't maybe run into many ordeals. But if you're moving the ball in your own life, your own ball in your own life, mm-hmm. um, with your own people and your own passion, you're going to run into ordeals. And in your ordeal, you discover yourself. Yeah. And, and in that discovery, your principles are clarified and your mission is clarified. Yeah. And then what happens is that the voices that you're listening to are deeper and deeper voices, you know, until finally, and this was what, what Terry talks about in Soul Work or, or what um, uh, um, almost talks about in, in the, the spark of being, you know, that the, as we identify with that, which is, you know, connected to the ultimate, then then essentially the, the, the warrior and the man of wisdom, they become the scaffolding through which we embody our principles into the world. And, and it's not just a scaffolding about doing stuff. It's a scaffolding about managing ourselves, which means managing our successes and failures and managing our desires and our drives and our fixations and all the other stuff that we have to manage. Um, and and what, what the warrior does... Um, is when when they encounter a kink um, in that on 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 that they have faced it in themselves and take responsibility for it. You know, when you were talking to that Navy SEAL in one of your interviews, basically he said you asked him about what's the culture. And he said the culture is radical personal responsibility. We all feel like we're responsible for everything that we experience and do, and that's all there is to it. In other words, if something happens to me, I'm responsible to deal with it. Okay, that is pure warrior. Yep. You know, when, and and what is responsible? Responsible is do you do what to take whatever you're supposed to do. You know, if you have to slay the dragon, slay the dragon. If you have to make friends with it, make friends with it. If you have to admit something about yourself, admit it. If you have to grow something about yourself, you grow it. Yeah. Well, I so think that's it's also much easier when we're not afraid of dying. Yeah. And I think I really do. I mean, it, it, yeah. like, in, in these little small humiliations, I don't care anymore. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, and 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 I'm working on the big death. But you know, it's not like we lose our fear of dying. Uh, because we, we're not afraid of being dead or gone. It's just that we realize, actually, we're not going to die. You know, this life is bigger than this, you know, particular Jeff form. And yeah. everything that I'm doing now is part of a lesson or part of what I need to grow into the next thing. And it's a mystery after death. But, you know, something's going to go on. And I'm just not afraid. of. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to worry about it. Everything's taken care of. And that's such a it gives so much strength. And, and look at the other drives along those lines. It becomes, if, if, if you feel challenged by, by another man say, it becomes less about having to compulsively respond and more like, what's the best thing to do? Yeah. If, oh, if this is interesting. And- this is interesting or, or having an impact. Most of the people that, that I work with who um, have ambition are dissatisfied with it themselves. You know, you know, my, you know, I sold a thousand copies of my book. I, I should have sold a million copies. You know, I sold a hundred. You know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I get this with 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 uh, um, you know CEOs. You know, I made a hundred million. I should have made two hundred million. It's like there's a sense of competition. So at a particular point, you have to face that. Okay, and go. All right. 
So if I'm not, if, if what am I going to do with that? You know, do I want to keep, do my principles say continue to surrender that? Or do my principles say to transform that into something else? Most men, as they begin to develop that level of self-reflection, and they're, you know, these are second-tier moments, they go, I want to transform it into something else. And so if they do business, it's, it's, it's business based more on body, mind, spirit, and self-culture and nature. Um, uh, sometimes they, they step away. Sometimes they, they have a more enlightened view. You know, I think this is why a lot of integral people go into business consultation. You know, because there's a yearning for for more sense of spiritual authority and more of a sense of existential uh, satisfaction in these cultures. And these people, you know, they, they hear a little bit about integral. They hear a little, you know, they hear read Bob, Rob's book on elegance, or they talk to Suzanne or something, and they go, hmm, or Bina Sharma. They go, hmm, you know, I I want that in my in my life and in my culture. Mm-hmm. And so they invite them in to help with that. You know, integral coaching people do a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's um, it's really great to feel like you are participating in your own growth and evolution. Yeah, and you're responsible for it. And you're responsible. And you know, it's a privilege to be responsible for it. Yeah, you know, it's a privilege to have a human incarnation that you get to direct. Yeah. You know, precious human body. My God, not not to mention a precious human consciousness. Yes. And so, as a warrior, you're responsible for that 100. Yeah. percent For everything that you experience and do. And if you grow, you become man of wisdom. And that that channels it back into the community, into the culture, into your life, and in into unexpected cool things. Yeah. Well, thank you for leading us through the journey, Keith. <laughs> once again. Appreciate it. Wonderful to talk as always. <laughs> My love to everybody. And a special shout out to everybody that I saw at the Integral Theories Conference. Yes. That happened in, uh, in June. I mean, in July. And more to come. We have an integral living room coming up in October, end of October here in Boulder. I'm doing the, uh, well, it's all on the website. It's on the website. There's lots. DrKeithWitt.com and DailyEvolver.com. And thank you all for tuning in to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Dr. Keith. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.